The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we do give you thanks this morning as we have been singing that you have sent hope. Here in this Christmas season, we, we celebrate you in your great wisdom doing the impossible, sending God the Son into human flesh to save. Our hope. And by your grace also, as we saw with the candle this morning, we, we have faith in that, we believe it. And I ask you then to give us greater belief, to help our unbelief, to conform us more to what you mean us to be, to trust you and depend on you, becoming individual people and a people in line with who you mean for your church, your new community to be, like Christ, displaying you accurately here in this world. And Lord, this morning as we look at a passage that tells us some about how we are to worship together, I pray that you would both point out where we fall short and also serve to guard us from ways where we might be tempted to follow others who fall short. So teach us this morning what it means for us to be a new community at worship. Lord, give clarity to my words and give us an ability to to hear your truth and understand them. The things you lay out for us in this passage, conform us to your image for Christ's glory, for our good, for your reputation in all of the earth. Make us a church pleasing to you, I ask. And I pray this in his name. Amen. This morning, as we give our attention to the last half of chapter 14, we are closing off another subsection of this book of 1 Corinthians. For some time now, we've been listening to God's instruction through Paul to us about how we are to interact as a body, a body with gifts, a body with a variety of gifts. We are all, we, we are an, an us, we're not just individuals, we are an us, and we are to interact using those gifts in love. But the emphasis at the beginning of chapter 14, the gifts are given to us to build up this body. So we interact together in love with our gifts for the goal of building up this people, this church. As he said in chapter 12, verse 7, and again in in chapter 14, these gifts that he gives us, they are a manifestation of God the Spirit. And so when we, we act with the gifts displaying them, we are, we are actually showing God among us. That's what builds us. So he has said some of these things, and he has, he has talked about now focusing on two particular gifts, doing so because they were probably a little bit troubling in, in Corinth. He's turned his attention to focus on the gifts of prophecy and tongues. But keeping in mind that that the gifts are given to build up the body, he has favored prophecy over tongues. While saying there is such a thing as tongues, there is some usefulness in it, but not compared to prophecy. Because prophecy speaks truth to the mind. We can process and think about, and as our minds are renewed, we are transformed, changed, grown. The prophecy is a greater value than tongues. He said that now through the first part of the chapter, and now here at the end of the chapter, he comes to a point of applying it. It begins verse 26. What then, brothers? Okay, so what do we do with this? Given these things, now what? What do we do? That's what we're going to look at this morning. He turns his attention to say, so here is how you should worship. When you gather together, here's how you should worship. And I think what we'll see also is some of how we should not worship. And as I, as I go there, as I talk about not... It's going to be unavoidable that there are going to be some finger-pointing a little bit. I'm going to try to be kind about that and not name names, but I do hope to, to show some things here that we, as we look out there at the world, we should be 
on guard against and should beware that we don't want to replicate those things in our midst either. So there's going to be some of what we should do and some of what we shouldn't do from this passage this morning, the last half of 1 Corinthians 14. So that's where we're going this morning. Let me read it. Beginning in verse 26 to the end of the chapter. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, let the others weigh what is said. And if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. 1 Corinthians 14. This passage of application begins by repeating the main point from this chapter, the, the goal that the ch- when the church gathers, all these different gifts come together, and he lists several of them there in verse 26, different gifts, that all of it is to be done for building up, for growing, for maturing the church. That's why God gives the gifts. When the church gathers, and remember, when we're talking about this gathering, it's have the context of Corinth in mind. It's a much smaller gathering than, than our gathering here. Probably most a couple dozen people packed onto a patio. We have a few hundred here. So it's a different setting which would mean different things. But in every setting where the church gathers, the goal is that the church would be built up, matured. And from there then he goes to, to kind of touch on these two gifts again, tongues and prophecy. Tongues first. It is allowed with limitations. And logically, the, the question, the biggest limitation, the question of an interpreter, logically, that has to be settled beforehand. Because you can't have somebody, for instance, speak in tongues and then see if there is some interpreter out there and finding that there isn't, retract that and make it to have not happened. Logically, that can't happen. It would be a violation of the let him keep silent. That needs to be sorted out beforehand. And then when you think about that, it has the effect of, again, as we've seen, so limiting tongues in public that it practically eliminates it. Not quite, pretty close. Tongues, essentially, tongues basically is meant for private. Prophecy is something different. Still only two or three are to speak, one at a time. This is orderly talk, not talking over top of one another, which can be done because the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Meaning, that this New Testament prophet, unlike an Old Testament prophet, has some self-control over the message. A New Testament prophet can say, here's what God has said, but I'll, I'll hold back on that. I won't say it. Or I'll say part of it. Or I'll, I'll delay because we're out of time. Or because you have something to say, I'll sit, I'll sit down and step back. Quite unlike, say, Isaiah. Where he speaks and says it all. And under a burden from the Lord and cannot keep quiet. A New Testament prophet can. And additionally, this prophet is different because he can be and actually must be, end of verse 29, it's a command, he must be evaluated. It says, let the others weigh what he says. And not meaning the other prophets, meaning other listeners. So as this person 
speaks, some sort of a, of a message that he or she says is from God, the others weigh that. And the, the, the weight of the word is to, is to query, to inquire, to examine, kind of point at and poke at. They question the prophet and who he is and what he has said. And that's the connection to verses 34 and 35, which probably as I read them, some of us thought, whoa, that's in the Bible. Those are some uncomfortable verses there. They've always been uncomfortable, a little difficult to hear. And because of that, some people have looked at them and said, those probably don't belong here in the Bible. Some have thought they don't really fit in the context. Some have thought they, they contradict what Paul said back in chapter 11. For those and other reasons, some have said that shouldn't be in the Bible. But at the end of the day, it is in the Bible. It belongs right here. And the key to understanding it is to remember the context. As it says in, in the NIV and in the ESV, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. What he's saying is, this is the way it is in Christianity. Women are to keep silent in a worship service. And he goes on to say, not permitted to speak. And you read that, you think, that's, that's pretty absolute. Well, remember the context. Just If you just look at it, Paul has not left the discussion of prophecy. He doesn't talk about prophecy, leave that, and go to make an absolute all overall statement about worship in general, and then come right back in the next couple of sentences to prophecy again. He's still on prophecy. He's still speaking about that subject. Don't lose sight of the context. And in regards to prophecy, what has Paul already taught about women and prophecy? Chapter 11. And we need to tie chapter 11 to this because he's got prophecy in both places. He's got men and women, husbands and wives, in both places. And he has even the same word, shameful or disgraceful, depending how your translation works, in both places. He's got three connections between these places. He's got them together in his mind. We need to have them together in our mind. What does he say in chapter 11? And I'm going to be really brief about that. If you want more detail about it, I refer you to the website. Go back and listen to that sermon. But in short, what he says in chapter 11 is, of course, women are going to pray and prophesy in church. It's assumed. The discussion in chapter 11 is how they are to do it. It is assumed that in a worship service, women are going to pray and are going to prophesy. So we cannot mean here in chapter 14, they're going to be absolutely silent in every conceivable way. They're going to be praying and prophesying, at least in those two ways. So what does he mean here? The context. What other kind of speaking has he just talked about in this context of prophecy? Weighing, judging the prophets. That's the issue here. He talks about women not being permitted to speak. The type of speaking they are not permitted to do is the weighing, the judging, the evaluating of the spoken prophecy. Because of, as it says in verse 34, because of the issue of submission as taught in the law. Most likely referring to Genesis chapter 2, where in the law, Moses' law, he establishes the creation order. Male headship. Paul often goes there when he's talking about men and women. It's probably what he has in mind here. And again, we talked about this back in chapter 11 because what do you know? That's the issue there too. Women, of course, will prophesy and will pray, but they must do so in a way that reflects an eager embracing of the established order and creation of male headship. And again, if that's a totally new concept to you, the most I can say this morning is I'll point you back to chapter 11. Listen to that sermon there. But the problem would instantly arise. Because of this issue of, of submission, the problem would, would arise right away as soon as a husband prophesies, not to mention any other man, but as soon as a husband prophesies and a wife begins to sit in judgment over that, she is no longer in submission, she's in authority. As the one challenging, inquiring, and examining. And that upsets the apple cart of creation. So he says, wives, if you want to inquire, if you want to learn, do so at home. Maybe an example might help make this clear. 
I, myself, I'm constantly teaching and preaching in public, right? All the time. Here in this pulpit, in life training classes, gospel communities, everywhere, I'm constantly teaching and preaching in public. And from time to time, with some regularity, people have questions, concerns, they disagree, maybe even with what I'm talking about right now. And it's not uncommon at all that someone will come to me and say, now hold on a second, what about... Happened a couple weeks ago, something indirectly that I taught in the life training course. Of course, somebody came, Bible opened and said, but what about, what does this passage mean? How do you square with what you said with this? That's good. Because this, not this, this is the authority. So people do that, and, and I'm sure you've probably filed by me at the door and have seen somebody there asking me and questioning me, and you thought nothing of it. But it would be a different thing, would it not, if you walked out today and you saw my wife standing there with her Bible open at the door saying, but what about... You'd stop and you'd note that. And it pretty quickly would move off of the issue of truth and you'd be seeing our marriage going on in public. That would be odd. And it would speak to disrespect. She should ask me that in private. At home. In public, in public, what happens? A wife, we as a church, should visibly display that we understand and we embrace the creation order of male headship. Now, I'm not establishing, I'm not proving that this morning. I think I did that back in chapter 11. So, again, if if you listen to that and you say, hmm point you back to that. But what's going on in this passage is he's saying there is a place for women to pray and women to prophesy, but there is not a place for women to sit in judgment over in the place of authority in the church over the prophets. That's what he teaches. And he knows all of that is going to ruffle some feathers in independent-minded Corinth in independent-minded America. So, Paul pulls out his trump card in verse 36. Anticipating there... Now, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. That's not right. I don't, I don't agree with that. Paul says, Was it from you that the Word of God came? Because last I checked, the Word of God came from me to you. This is, this is confrontational here. You can hear it in the tone that I'm, I'm using here. You can, there's confrontation in these verses. Paul is standing up being a big boy. He's put on his apostle boots and saying, I am the one in charge. Not because I'm the guy, but because I have been given from God the word. And what I write is the command of the Lord, verse 37. You, Corinth, you, church, did not originate the Word of God. You are not on an independent island somewhere free to decide what you like. You are not in a position to say to me, Paul, thank you for your advice. We will take that into consideration when we structure our church. No, if that is your status, if that's where you go, you don't recognize me, you yourself are not recognized. This is hot. You can see it. It's hot. Paul says... How you stand in relation to me and what my writing, what I'm writing, tells us all how you stand in relation to God. Because he is the apostle. And an unbeliever might look at that and say, holy smokes, that is, that is the worst kind of manipulation. For me to say, I'm in charge, so you have to listen to me. I'm the boss, I started this place, I get to say what goes. That's the worst kind of manipulation. But if you're a believer, you look at that and you say, uh, yeah. When Paul showed up in Corinth, it was a city full of pagans. And he brought with him the gospel and in demonstration of the spirit and of power spoke and this changed people. He is the apostle. Different from what all kinds of people claim today. He has a life and he has power that displays he and what he writes is the authority. Beneath which all of us equally must sit. 
And then he closes off the actual issue at hand. So in conclusion, don't forbid tongues, but desire prophecy. And make sure that everything is done decently and in order. That's the passage. It's, it's a summary. It has a lot of kind of application related to things that he's said before, tying together here how the body is to interact when it gathers to worship. I'm going to make two observations and then tie them together in an, an overarching point at the end. Two observations from what Paul teaches us in this section of application. The first one much larger than the second one. So the first observation is this. God commands us to worship with his gifts in an orderly manner. God commands us to worship with his gifts in an orderly manner. He gives us spiritual gifts. They're, they're his gifts given to us. As verse 26 reveals, we're going to come together, we're going to bring all kinds of gifts to the table. And we're expected to use them in, in all kinds of various ways as we worship together. But the other end of it, verse 40, the very end, it's to be done in a decent and orderly way. In other words, with propriety, with proper decorum, in an orderly fashion, according to proper structure. Which we have to be careful to understand. Because, boy, we hear those words, and is it not very easy to hear in them, wooden pews, everybody sitting in order, no smiling, deep, somber speaking, because we are in the presence of the holy God. Don't smile. This isn't funny. It's orderly. It's easy to hear that, isn't it? And we sh if we have to have an instrument, it must be an organ. And we must follow the, the religious, strict, strident even rules and hold to the form and follow the menu written down on the program to the minute. We hear those things and maybe certainly whatever else might be the opposite of joyful, free, and expressive. It's, it's not hard to look at decently, with propriety, in order, and, and think like that. And to be honest, a lot of people who structure worship services like that use this very verse to justify it. Get rid of the electric guitar. There's no way that's decent. We need to be careful we understand this because there is something real here and there's something not real often attached to this. Men and women, when we worship, one of the, the, the elemental truths of worship is that it is rejoicing. It is not worship if it is not rejoicing. You do not worship something by saying, I would rather be anywhere else, but I am here now because I have to be. Praise you. That is not worship because it is not rejoicing. Rejoicing is fundamental to worship, and joy, when it comes out of you, is emotive. This, there is no contradiction between expressive joy and decent order. So wipe that away right now. But we've got to say, what is decent order? And the passage itself sketches out some guidelines. I'm, I'm going to say there are three paths here in this passage that sketch out what decent order looks like. And as we look at them, we have to be clear, without, without nailing down every detail, there, there is truth being taught here that is to be obeyed. This is the command of the Lord. And here's where I point a little bit of a finger. We... We all know that there are branches of what is called the charismatic movement that conduct worship as if they have never read this chapter. That call revivals things that reflect they've never read this chapter. So we have to be aware of that, and I want you to know I am aware of that. We have to be on guard against it without throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Because, on the other hand, there is clearly something called speaking in tongues. Something called prophecy. And it's real. It's easier to just say, I see some error in some branch of the charismatic movement, the whole thing's junk then. No, it isn't. It is not. It is not. Pieces of it are junk. And if we're honest... 
pieces of the non-charismatic movement are junk. It's not that easy to say one's right, one's wrong. There is a command here about decent and orderly worship. And it has three paths that we have to see in this passage and be sure that we follow. And when we look out there at other things, be sure that we agree with the right things and set aside the wrong things. So, first, for starters, it says something here about how the gifts are to be displayed. How we are to worship. How tongue speakers and prophecy speakers, prophets, or to express their gifts. And, and really, because he's got all those gifts listed there in 26, we, we can stretch this out to apply it to the gifts in general. But remember, he's focusing on two because they were a problem in, in that church. But the gifts in general, particularly prophecy and tongues, how are these gifts to be utilized in worship? Well, decent and in order means in a way that does not sow confusion, but clarifies truth. In a way that is not out of control, but instead feeds the mind with fact. It isn't, you clearly see there, it's not talking over one another, it's, it's taking turns, it's expressing biblical knowledge, word from God that you can hear and understand and is intelligible for the purpose of building up. Everything done for building up, it says. So we, as we think about our gifts, we must preach and we must sing songs even that feed the mind and work towards building up and aren't just built upon a catchy tune, a nice beat. Nothing wrong with that in itself, but that's not enough. It must be, in fact, truth-centered, appealing to the mind for building up. And specifically, the restrictions he's getting at here are applying to prophecy and tongues. Again, to be specific and to point a little bit. We need to understand some things from these verses so that we can properly evaluate what you find on the internet sold as revival. Or what you find across town sold as real worship. These verses express to us that the kind of worship and the the kind of exercising of gifts that God commands does not create an atmosphere of mania. A manic atmosphere. An ecstatic. An out-of-controlledness. An atmosphere where a speaker or perhaps all kinds of speakers all at once seen that? Where a speaker or many speakers all at once are, are allegedly overtaken by the Spirit and God is moving through many people all at once to create an atmosphere in which who knows what's being said because nobody's interpreting anything. It's just going on. And everybody is in, in some sort of a trance and it's become a mere receptacle for God who has taken over and is so giving people joy with no truth in it at all. That's not how God means for the gifts to be expressed. It is not of God, period. Such a thing is sin. Called revival in disobedience to the Bible. You need to be really clear about that. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Subject to conscious choice to behave in a decent manner. That is, in a manner appropriate for human beings. Made in the image of God. And being transformed as they feed on truth. Being renewed in their minds and transformed more and more into the image of this great God. Barking like a dog, howling in some spiritual ecstasy. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, 
You could Google that stuff and find it. It is not of God. Period. We need to be very careful with this because there is a great attraction in those sorts of things. Often an attraction for people who who have been maybe over here in the non-charismatic camp where they have found deadness who say, man, at least there's some life over here. The truth is that we must not go over here, but we must not stay here. We must say there is such a thing as God speaking. There is such a thing as the presence of God. And when He is real and when He is submitted to, He produces joy and exuberance. Read the history of genuine revivals and you find, in fact, tremendous expression. Oftentimes great sorrow and weeping or great rejoicing and shouts of, of acclaim, of praise because people have heard truth and have processed it and been affected by it. And if you are hearing truth and are not being affected by it, one must ask, are you processing it? Is it gripping you? The Spirit of God takes truth and moves people with it. He puts it in their minds and renews them and thereby transforms them, as Romans says. We must not stay in deadness and say, this is proper decorum. Often it's just deadness. But we must not give way to everything that calls itself of God, because there isn't God in all those things. How we are to express the gifts is in a way that is fitting for human beings made in the image of God, that is conducive for truth being communicated to the mind, that we may be built up, 31, that all may learn and be encouraged. That's how. And then 34 and 35 indicate more than just how, but who is in authority over the expression of the gifts. I already talked sensibly about what this passage means, but it's worth pointing out again. There is an assumption of male headship in the church. It's the same issue in chapter 11. It's the issue here. It's the issue in many other places in the Bible. Paul talks in 1 Timothy about male eldership and the male teaching, the gift of teaching. Who sits in authority over the church and how it worships and how gifts are exercised? Well, the Bible is clear. Men, and particularly gifted and called men, elders. This one probably hits a little more closer to home, I would guess. So let me just ask you, are you okay with that? You can be. You should be, because it's a command, but beyond that, you can be. You can be okay with that. Male headship and female submission, you can be okay with that, because the same God who set that up in the creation order just as much cares about, loves, knows, protects, provide for, provides for, and bestows favor and honor upon women as he does men. Just as much. We get this all messed up in our world because we, and again I'm dipping a little bit into the chapter 11 sermon, we commonly tie value to job, to role. If you have a really important job, you are more valuable. And if you have a less important job or role, less valuable. That's how our world works. That's not how God's world works. The clearest evidence of this is that's not how the Trinity works. Chapter 11 talks about how God the Son is in submission to God the Father and has a role given to Him that is subordinate. But is God the Son of less value than God the Father? By no means. They are of equal value. Both are fully God. You can be okay with male headship in the church. God will equip you men and equip you women to walk in that. So we need to worship in a way that reflects decent order 
a piece of which is not just how the gifts are exercised, but who sits in authority in the church over the exercise of the gifts. And the third track, the third path of decent order here is in the last part of the passage where he says, not, it's not just enough to say here we've got the gifts being exercised properly and here we have the people sitting over it rightly. What's the, the basis? Here's a what. What is the basis of judgment and authority? And it's the written word of God. That which comes from the Apostle Paul, which he is writing. The command of the Lord. The prophets speak. The judges sit over them. And they sit before a prophet like this. Looking at the prophet over the Bible. I express it like this because sometimes what a prophet says will not be found in any particular chapter or verse. This is God speaking to a prophet and the prophet saying, I think this is what God has me to say to you. And the judge then says, let me check that. Let me find out who you are. Let me explore your life in relation to this. Tell me something, would God be inclined to use you? Or do you have ulterior motives? Does what you say match, line up with, or is it in contradiction to the Bible? I sift you over this. And I'm also evaluating, are you the prophet? Are you speaking to me in some way that would incline me to set my Bible aside and make you the new authority? And if so, a red flag should go up. Because the Bible is the ground on which we stand as a church. We listen to the prophets. I shared a couple of examples a few weeks back where I, I think people have prophesied things to me that I couldn't find in any particular chapter or verse, but as I weigh it, I say, that matches. I'm inclined to listen. We must do that over the Bible, careful to not assign to any particular person some new, greater authority. In the end, that person is just like all the rest of us, a member of the church with a gift. Some branches of the church are inclined to set up prophets and make them new authorities, just like other branches of the church are inclined to set up preachers and make them new authorities. Neither one is appropriate. The Bible is the ground on which we stand. Decent and in order. It's what God commands of us. That's how He structures our worship. And if we've got those three paths how we are to exercise the gifts to make the the communication of truth reasonable, who sits in authority, and what the, the foundation on which we judge everything. We've got those paths. We're on the right track. And then we come to a point where we're going to have to make a hundred judgment calls. Any particular church. A hundred judgment calls. How much time are we going to meet to worship? When? Where? Who's going to speak? For how long? How many songs? What kind of instruments? Etc., etc., etc. All of those things are judgment calls. We must be, it must be clear that we're trying to make application of these principles, but it's up for discussion. Where we are right now on these particular gifts is we do not speak in tongues in our public worship services. We say, if you have the gift of tongues, I think it's legitimate, bless you. Speak to your own edification in private with it, as he says in the beginning of the chapter. Prophecy, again, with a setting of our size, much bigger than what's going on in Corinth where Paul is speaking directly. As we think that through, we, we have not come to a place where we think we can do prophecy and the proper weighing of it in a public setting here in this church service, so we don't do it in our worship service. But I must hasten to say, in smaller settings where it can be properly weighed, where a person can be known, 39, earnestly desire to prophesy. Where a person can be known and where it can be properly weighed, particularly where elders can be present. That's, that's the judgment calls that our church is making right now on these two particular gifts. But what's clear is that God commands us to worship with his gifts in an orderly manner. And tragically, 
That's not always the case. Churches everywhere, sometime among us in different settings, I said tragically because of what's lost. Which brings me to the second observation. And I come to the second observation by way of a question. I ask why. It's clear what God says, but why does he say it? Why does God command that we worship with his gifts in an orderly way? And it can't just be to help him keep track of things. You know, we, we, we create order in our lives so that I, I order my house so I know where the scissors are. They're in that drawer. God doesn't struggle with that problem, guys, you know? There's got to be some other reason than just because he needs order. Why then? And the answer, here's the second observation. Because this command is an expression of his glory and grace. Because he desires to gain for himself glory and to do us good. That's the grace part. Always. I pray this very frequently. I hope I say this enough that it becomes very deeply planted in your mind. God is always acting for his glory and for our good. The good of his people and the glory of God are not two separate things that he has to choose between. They are joined. And that's why he commands this orderly worship. Look at verse 33, which I haven't said anything about yet, but I hope you've been wondering, what's with verse 33? Verse 33 would fit in right here. It would fit in right here. It would fit in right here. It does fit in in a lot of places. And if you notice what it is, this, this whole discussion has a, has a lot of detail about how one should behave, how the church should act. And then in 33, it kind of steps aside and says, here's something about the character of God. And then comes back to more detail about how we should act. This, this aside about the character of God is very important. He says, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets for, here's why that is, for God is not a God of confusion. He's not a God of confusion, but of peace. He gifts people, remember they are a manifestation of God, the gifts. And if he were to reveal himself in a gift... What he says should come out of that is order because it's coming from a God who is not a God of chaos and confusion, but is a God of peace. It's going to reflect him. It's going to be like him. Not a God of confusion, but of peace, which is more than just saying he's a God of structure. He's a God of peace. You got Paul's Jewish background breaking through here. You got this, the shalom of God. It's who God is. So think about God for a minute. Step away from how we're supposed to behave and think about God. He is a God who is whole and true at rest, full of righteousness, unhurried, always happy, always content, never lacking. When I think about peace, I think about it like this. Deep breath. That's God in his nature. He sits at rest. He is not threatened. He is not hustling. Got to nail down everything before it gets away from me. Shalom. Right relationship. 
right conditions, a right earth, everything right. That's who God is, a God of peace. And heaven, where He currently sits, is a realm of And we, His people, His church, His new community, that are to be a foretaste of that, we are to be then a place that is... (sighs) Right. And good. And whole. At rest. Which I'm expressing in a certain way, but I need to clarify, it does leave room for... Amen! It leaves room for that. It's a different expression. But that's, a, that's an expression of a delight, or even an expression of sorrow on the way to delight, when the truth of this God, this God who has acted to reconcile you to Him, when that comes home to you, it should produce perhaps sorrow on the way to delight, or maybe just great exuberant joy. But all of that is... Bless God! I know goodness, and I know contentment, and I know rest, and I know wholeness, and the lack of anxiety, and the lack of crisis, and the lack of chaos, and the end of confusion. Bless God. Shalom. And if this God were to manifest Himself in your life, what would come out of you would be shalom. So the gift that He gives to you and to you and to you and to you is to be expressed in a peace. And we together as we express the gifts should be peace. And when we conduct our own little Occupy Salt Lake, or they conduct their own little Occupy Corinth, what they create is a little community camped out on the lawn of that all may see it and say that comes from somewhere that is awesome. And we say someone who is awesome, let me tell you about him. To the glory of this God of peace. He commands this for His glory, that where we go camp out, He will be accurately known and not clouded in the chaos and self-centered confusion that we unfortunately often lapse into when we try to exercise our gifts for our own glory. But think for a minute, it is not just only about the glory of God, it is also His grace for the good of you as people. Because what happens when that all takes place and He grips you, He comes to fill you with that? What what do you become? You become that person, which is awesome. When Christ died to save you, He did not only die to just give you a get-out-of-jail-free card. He died to change you. To remove off of you the chaos of the fall. Let's not use the gifts and revert back into the chaos. He died to remove off of you the chaos of the fall and to put on you the glory of shalom, His rest, His peace. You are a most fortunate people. A most blessed people. And as we worship in an environment like this, we hear the truth coming out of God's Scriptures and perhaps even coming directly through a prophet. We hear the truth of God coming to us and we are built up as we learn and are encouraged. We come to understand who we are in our very genders as He's made us. And we begin to run with harmony through the world rather than cross-grain. You realize that misunderstanding our gender just makes you run cross-grain through life. It's hardwired. You are male or you are female, one or the other. Coming to understand this and, and walk with it and work with it is glorious. God does this for your good. 
He commands these things for our good, for His glory, absolutely, but for our good, that we would become a people like our God, not of confusion, but a God of peace. That's why He gives the gifts manifesting Himself, the God of peace, that in us He would be glorified, in that in us He would be grown for our good. So tie this together. This is my main point for this morning. Our God of peace gifts us for our orderly growth into His community of peace. Our God of peace gifts us for our orderly growth into His community of peace. Let me pray. Father, make this so. Thank You for Your instruction, for Your command, in fact. And I pray that Your Spirit would move in us and make it so. Make us receptive to all of Your gifts. Make us careful to exercise them in the right ways. Make us to be people who understand gender in the church. Make us to be people who rest in Your Word. Build us to be individuals and a body that is like You. To Your glory and for our good. As we celebrate this Communion Supper now, Lord, we think again about how it is that you brought this to be. What looked like folly to to humans is the wisdom and the power of God in the cross. So we thank you for that, and I pray that as we turn out of that, you would rest on our minds and continue to, to woo us to you. Convict us of sin where necessary. Encourage us where necessary. Have your way with us, I pray, Lord. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.